Hello, my fine, fine, fine friends. Oh, my stars, we're getting close to Christmas. Oh, it's so exciting, isn't it? And welcome <laughs> to Rahalastapa. This week is an extraordinary episode. You are going to enjoy this. Don't miss a second. If you need a wee, go now. If you need a cup of tea, go and make it now. I mean, you can pause at any point during. Uh, it's with the absolute le living legend, Miriam Margulies, uh, and she did not disappoint. I think she was um, possibly in a little bit of a bad mood when she arrived, uh, but the reception she got from the audience made her extremely happy. She said to me afterwards, it, it was like they all knew who I was. Uh, she doesn't appreciate what an uh, absolute star she is, how famous she is, uh, but perfect guest because she will answer any question in an with an openness that some people may find almost disturbing. Um, but most of you will love, I certainly love this one, um, absolutely one of my, straight into the top ten for me, Little Richie Herring, for Rahel Um, And I do recommend Miriam's book if you want more of the same. Uh, my books are also good, Would You Rather? And The Problem With Men are out in all good bookshops now or gofasterstripe.com. And uh, you can also, of course, get the audiobooks for both those books. Uh, perfect, perfect Christmas gifts. Put them on your wish list for Santa. Um, and just listening to the podcast, we're hoping to do lots of exciting things in 2022, which I will let you know about more of. The money we get from adverts, we are ploughing back into making ever more exciting and new stuff, including new podcast series and something else that we'll talk about soon, um, which I'm very excited about. So do keep listening with the ads if you can. If you can't stand the ads, become a badger. Go fasterstripe.com slash badgers and you get an ad-free stream amongst your many, many benefits. Anyway... I'm not going to take up any more of your time. I know you're not listening to this anyway. Which is a shame because I'm going to reveal something very exciting right now. Will you sit back, relax and enjoy Rahala Stapa with Miriam Margulies. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Leicester Square Theatre. Please welcome a man who can't show his face in his village ever again. It's Richard Herring. Hello, London! How are we doing? Last one at the Leicester Square Theatre. You're much better than last week's audience. There was a crazy person in last week just kept on making weird noises. Like they were, like they were a clown horn or something. Thank goodness they're not here. Welcome to Richard Harry's Leicester Square Theatre podcast. I was talking to Sai from off of uh, Gangnam Style. Calls it, he does a dance and then he calls it Rahal Lester, so he does a funny, he does a, he does a dance. He does a dance. Um, got nothing, I used all my jokes up last week. <laughs> Nothing's happened to me in the last week. I've been writing my, uh, my sitcom. Uh, there's uh, uh, like, uh, 10 days to the first record. Uh, I've got, I've got five scripts, I have six, so it's, it's fine. We'll get there, uh, and uh, I should say, uh, do a perfect Christmas gift if it's not now, past Christmas, at home. Would you rather, Richard Herring's Would You Rather book, Richard Herring's The Problem With Men, is uh, also available in, in paperback. Uh, uh. <laughs> yes. Yes, it's like my penis. It's not, it's not hard. Uh, so, let's... Uh, 
Let's have a little look around. So there's a lady avoiding my gaze here. Hello, what's your name? You chopped it. It's so rare for me to talk about my penis, isn't it? She's a little bit shocked. I talked about my penis. Would you, it's the last show. Would you want to have a little look at it? You, <laughs> what's your name? I should ask your name first. Camilla. That's nice, isn't it? And are you called Charles? Come on. It would be great. Camilla. What do you do for a living, Camilla? Something. I bet last week's show all about white privilege. I bet you were. You were sitting there embarrassed, weren't you, Camilla? About that? What's... Uh, she did say, don't feel guilty about your massive estate. What do, you, what do you do? What do you do for a living? You're an opera singer. Check your privilege. Honestly. What's the best... Uh, I, mean, I, I can sing a bit of light opera. Do you want to... Uh, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to remember something. I used to do the bird catcher for... I can't remember. I can't remember. I can do Dick How's that? No, not so good. I've lost that. I've lost my nice... My nice. I'm a baritone. You got any, do, you want any, do you want me to come and do some singing up in the... No, in the opera. What opera are you in at the moment? Uh, well, I'm doing, well, lots of little bits. Lots of little bits. Not much call for opera at the moment, unfortunately. Is there, is there any ever call for opera? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's unnecessary. I think we can agree it's not necessary. I think we can agree nobody who goes to it has a nice time. Can't we? We can agree that. We can agree that, can't we, Camilla? <laughs> they're all dying. They're dying, yeah. Fair enough. You carry on with your opera, it might lead to some. Maybe you'll get on uh, pop stars like Darius. <laughs> it might work out well. Hey, look, let's crack on. That is lovely to thank you for coming, Camilla. It's lovely to meet. I'm not even. I respect you so much. I'm not even going to show you my penis. That is. That is. How... <laughs> uh, my guest this week is probably best known for her appearance on a kick up the eighties. <laughs> It's Miriam Margulies, ladies and gentlemen. It's Miriam Margulies. <laughs> Miriam Margulies. Fantastic. How lovely to see you. Oh, I have to use this. You have to stick up, right. stick up near face. I didn't understand any of what you said just good. now. Good, it's a good job. It, it was fascinating. <laughs> I tried I, to sing some light opera, but I forgot. Is all that of it. what it was? I was trying, yeah. I forgot everything. I heard bit of this opera. wailing, and I thought, oh, oh dear. Well, look, Miriam, it is absolutely wonderful to have you here. I think this is going to be a very interesting evening. Fucking hope so, mate. <laughs> we, we had, uh, I don't know if you know him very well, we had uh, an actor called Brian Blessed. Uh, oh, on a, of on course a, I do. An, He's on lovely. A few, few years ago. He's and lovely. I feel we may, we may beat... I mean, you were in Blackadder with Brian Blessed, weren't I you? I was. I was just in, yeah. yes. And Did, he's, he's, he's wonderful, and it was great fun. It, I mean, do you all remember Blackadder? It's a <laughs> long time ago. 
<laughs> Long time ago. It was set, it was actually recorded in the 14th century, right? So it's, it was. And I was there. <laughs> <laughs> well, we might talk about that later. I, look, I want to say I'll say it right at the start. This book, your book, this much is true. Which, if it's all true, it's unbelievable. Some of it. <laughs> But I do believe it because it is true. It because is true. it's you're a very honest. Uh, you've got a fantastic memory. You're very very indiscreet, Miriam. <laughs> I, <laughs> Only about me. <laughs> Occasionally about others, and apparently there's some stuff the lawyers wouldn't let her put in, and I, that that makes my. We may try and get to that uh, within the podcast. By the way, it is half price. At Tesco and Sainsbury's. <laughs> so, if you if you would be so kind as to buy it, I'd be so delighted. Thank you. It's a it's a proper book. Look, this is uh, Emma's book from last week. That and looks that's, like that's... a pamphlet more than a more than a book. I, I started work on that uh, th a month ago. So that I could properly, and, and now I've forgotten most of the stuff that I read a month ago, but it was, uh, it's, a, it's a fantastic read. Um, I want to tell you, before you start, yes. darling, sorry, uh, there, there is another actress who's written a book which is absolutely wonderful. It's better than mine. I hate her for it. <laughs> uh, her name is Eileen Atkins. And if you don't know her, she's the greatest actress working in England today, bar none. And her book is absolutely wonderful. It's called Will She Do? Will <laughs> She Do? And it's about her early years before she became what she is now, a dame. She is a dame of, I suppose, the British Empire, is it? Uh, just like Maggie Smith and Judy Dench and, and those other small people. She, <laughs> uh, she is a dame, and I do beg you, when you've bought mine, um, <laughs> buy hers, because it's wonderful. Well, I can't see anybody. Why don't they put the lights it's up? For the, it's for the best, Miriam. You don't want to see these people. But it's can not, they see me? Can they you can, see They me? can see you. <laughs> well, that's, There's that's lights something. on us. We keep that's... them in the dark for a reason, Miriam. Oh. We, put, we put the sexy, beautiful people up here. And we what keep... are the others like? <laughs> <laughs> now, I... I th I, what I enjoyed, as I do with with many books, is having it read to me by the author. Which I so I actually listened to the audio book version, which is and and just listening to you talk to the audience there. Uh, it must have taken you a long time to do because it took me a long time to listen to it, uh, and it probably took double that time. And beautifully read. Well, it's one of my things. Yeah. Um, I have a wonderful voice, and. Um, <laughs> Not, I can't sing like the lady in the opera, yeah. that does opera here. Yeah. I can't sing, but I can talk mellifluously and with clarity so you can hear every word. Would you agree with that? It is. It's, it's... Good, thank you. I'm sure they'll line it out, but there's a little bit in the audiobook where they, they've left a retake in, and it's, I'm actually glad they did. Because you go, oh, is that the correct way to do that? Let's do that again. And there's a little bit of your professionalism 
left in due to the unprofessionalism of the people who put the audio book together. I have to say. Oh, I'm, I didn't know uh, that. No, How no. wonderful. <laughs> I love things like that. I love things like that. And it, it usually happens in an audio book because they're so complicated to put together and yeah. they're so long to put together that it's, it, there's usually a mistake. We're well, talking of your voice. Let's go. Let's start with uh, th there's there's things that people I think will be surprised that you did because they won't necessarily you've done a lot of voiceovers and one of the voiceovers which people may know about you were the Cadbury's bunny which uh, I was I mean that was a long time ago of course now my voiceover is annual soul suppositories <laughs> Which you and, could use a Cadbury's caramel for, to be fair. And they gave me a whole carton of them. <laughs> I, I'm not quite sure why, if I look as if I need them or something. <laughs> but I've been passing them out to friends. <laughs> it was a, it's, uh, the Cadbury's bunny, though, is one of those formative experiences. For a, I was a young man when that came... On and you know that may get that's the result of my rabbit fetish that I have. I can only have sex with very sexy cartoon rabbits now as a, as as a result of that. Can you remember the voice you did for that? Are you able to are you able to recreate the? Because it might. I'm just warning you. There may be some trouser action. You talk about your penis a lot. Don't you? <laughs> I was listening backstage and rather nervously as what was about to pop out. Um, well, I think it must be very difficult sometimes for blokes because you've got this dangle and there it is, sort of somewhere on the left or occasionally somewhere on the right. And uh, it, it seems to have a life of its own. It does. Um, whereas we're all tidy. Um, we've got a little envelope to put things in, you know. Well, Cadbury's bunny. Um, <laughs> did she have a little envelope as well? I think she did. Yeah. I, my memory of it was it, it was sort of faintly rural like that. And it was, hello, Mr. Rabbit. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's too sexy. I better not go on. But, <laughs> but I mean, that's sort of what it, what it was like. But you I do specialise in the, the sexy voice though you, you talk about having done a you did a sort of porn a sort of soft porn recording as one of your first jobs actually that's absolutely true yeah. i started uh well i started on radio four be, be fair <laughs> and then i graduated to porn <laughs> and um <laughs> and uh it was because uh, another actress in the drama repertory company told me that you could earn a bit of extra money doing porn tapes and we weren't paid that much so I thought yes I'll go and audition and the auditions were held in the warehouse of the Ann Summers sex shop <laughs> and many of you will go there often I'm sure because you're, you're, you're the sort of people who go there um, it was a in Tottenham Court Road. And um, I had to go in there, and there was this fleshy, greasy man. Um, and he said, 
Can you audition? Are you all right? Auditioning? And I said, all right, here's the script. And just give you everything you've got. And I, I want to see if you know how to do this. Um, have you had much experience of this kind of thing? And I said, no, not actually, not a lot of experience. Um, he said, well, just, you know, breathe and give it everything. Just, you know, use your imagination. I wrote it myself, he said. <laughs> and I could see that he, he really wanted to be praised for this garbage that he'd <laughs> put in front of me. And it was really horrid. I mean, I didn't enjoy it a bit, but anyway, I got the job. And it, it was interesting because my eye was held by by the items on the shelves of this um, emporium. Uh, and they were um, scrotum twisters, <laughs> nipple clamps, and uh, various mm. things like that. I've had a like scrotum that. twister myself. It's not that much fun. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I got the job and I got 300 quid for doing yeah. it. And did you ever track that in the book? You ask if anyone has a copy of it because you haven't. Your copy's gone missing. I haven't uh, got a copy, and I don't know if any of you have. What, what's, what's, the, what's it called? It's called "Sexy Sonia Leaves from My Schoolgirl Diary." <laughs> it was a different time. It was. It was a different time. Actually, it's about the same. To be fair. <laughs> So yeah, so well, and and there was a, a cigar commercial as well. That that was a was another. Yes, you that were... was mannequin, mannequin cigar, um, mannequin cigar special. <laughs> I I remember that, and it it said it it talked about the kind of tobacco that it was made from. It said, tobacco come from middle middle leaf best make. Mannequin cigar <laughs> special. <laughs> you have to laugh, don't you? <laughs> so look, there's there's so much I want to talk to you about. Let's talk about you were in the footlights to, to, when you yes. Came Do you know what the footlights are? Not everybody would know. Um, the footlights is a, a club at Cambridge for for men. Uh, at that time, women weren't allowed to join yeah. when I was there. I'm fucking 80. <laughs> I'm fucking 80 years old. Do you understand? So, in those days, they, they didn't allow women to join. And it was a club for men to prance about being funny. And, <laughs> and every year they, they did a, a review and they asked uh, women to, uh, to join, to audition to be a member of the cast. And I... I auditioned and I was the woman in the 1962, that's how long ago it was, 1962 Footlights Review, and it was called Double Take. Uh, do you know what a double take is? A double take is when you look at someone and you go like that. <laughs> that's a double take, and that's what it was called. Yeah. And uh, there were people in it like John Cleese, Bill Oddie, Humphrey Barclay, Tony Hendra, Robert Atkins, Tim Brooke Taylor, and it was directed by Trevor Nunn, and they were cunts, all of them. (laughs) (laughs) 
it's very sad to hear. I mean, you, you write about it very, very... And, and you feel, and I'm sure this is true, because it's, it's, it's a sad thing that it maybe put you off doing comedy for a while, though you've done so much comedy that it's, I'm, it's not... I'm not a comedian. You know, I'm not so the, funny, a comedian Miriam. the way they are. No. Uh, thank, thank goodness, in some ways. <laughs> but, I mean, they are brilliant. Uh, uh, John and, and Graham and Bill, they, they were geniuses in, the, in their own way, but they were nasty people. They were unkind and they were horrible to me and I've never forgiven them and mm. never forgotten it. So that's why I say what I do. When you, when it came out, Bill Oddie actually tried to contact you on Twitter, I think, to say how... Did he? Yeah. He, he, I think he felt very upset. He said, I Well, I'm not on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Twitter? I saw, I saw him tweeting. A woman of 80 doesn't do Twitter. What are they talking about? But, uh, Twitter? Was... <laughs> oh, Christ. He, he was saying he was saying he was doing all he could to get women admitted to the uh, to the footlights, but I just thought I'd pass that on. But uh, he was well, you know, he's he's probably grown up and he's probably sorry that he was so horrid. Yeah. But they were horrible because what they did this is this is exactly what they did. They sent me to Coventry. I don't know if you know what that expression means. It means that you d you don't get spoken to. So I would do the show with them on the stage. And then I'd come off in, and stand in the wings for the next entrance. And I would just cease to exist. They didn't look at me or speak to me for the entire run of the show. And that was incredibly hurtful and, and made me very unhappy. And I've never forgotten it. And they also didn't ask me to the cast party. I was a member of the cast and I wasn't asked to the cast party. So I went to the president of Footlights and said, look, I haven't been asked to the cast party and I want to go. And he said, oh, it's a, it, it, Miriam, it's, a, it's an oversight. I can, I can assure you. I said, it isn't a bloody oversight. <laughs> they were just being horrible, but I want to go. And I went, of course, I did go. But I, I've never forgotten it. And you can say, what a crabby old bitch that I should remember that. And yes, I am. <laughs> well, I don't... But I think people should be called out for when they're horrible. Oh. The, um... The interesting thing about the book, I think, is how... I mean, you talk about having 11,000 people in your mobile phone, uh, something like that, that you... How, how many friends you've made over your career and how nice you are about, about everyone. Pretty much every story is we went on to be fantastic friends. Uh, so when you are mean about something, we know that it's for real. It's <laughs> so for real. Just, yeah. It's for real. I'm telling the truth. Yeah. I wrote the book because the publishers wrote to me and offered me so much money. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I honestly, and I thought, well, I'm not turning that down. <laughs> so that's why I wrote it. Yeah. It, it wasn't because I ever intended to write it. I never did. But now I'm jolly glad I did. You know? <laughs> well, there's some, there's some very good, a couple of revelations in the book that I'll say, I don't necessarily want you to say how you know, that Leonardo DiCaprio, when you met him, was quite smelly. Uh, Bruce, Bruce he, didn't, he didn't want to wash. Yeah. He, he, he's not a smelly boy now. He's no. not. He's very fragrant. He's a nice boy. But when he was young, and this was when he was oh, 18 or 19, he, he didn't wash. <laughs> you know, and even blokes, I mean, women must wash. I, I certainly have to every single day, of course. <laughs> but I, he didn't. He just sort of thought it was kind of cute. To have that um, smell. It's, uh, it's a funk, isn't it? It's a funky, the funky, funky smell. Funky, he thought it was funky. I just thought it was horrid. <laughs> but, 
but he's a very nice fellow, yeah. actually. Uh, don't tell them. How, I'm not going to tell them how you know this, but Bruce Willis farts in bed. We, that, so that's what I, that's what I've learned from your book. <laughs> but let's not tell them. They have to read the book to find out how. Yes, you have to. How you know, <laughs> you know that? Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, who you worked with, um, you had a little bit of a, a, of a. I mean, not falling out with him, but it was a little bit of falling out. But quite an un, quite a funny story about what he did to you at the. Yes, he he farted in my face actually. <laughs> Um, because I had farted on set, but not in his face. I just sort of just happened. Yeah. And it came alone. It wasn't anything, it wasn't mixed with anything. And um, I thought that was fair enough. Yeah. And uh, he obviously thought it was a license to fart. And, <laughs> and he farted. I was lying on the floor yeah. in, in, in kind of dead in this in this film i was satan's sister that was the part i was playing and he he lay over me and and farted in my face i thought he was awful i, I didn't like him very much very professional he taught me how to how to fight because i had a fight with him and he told me how to uh, look as if I'd been hurt and and how to punch him so it looked as if he'd been hurt. Uh, but he was a groper. Didn't grope me. Um, he didn't fancy me. That was fine. I was grateful for that. But he he groped everybody else, every other young lady on, on the show. And I, I think that's so tiresome. If only men realise how boring it is. <laughs> it's so fucking boring. Well, I think it's great that you that you feel happy to call out in the book as well that, that kind of behaviour. It's it it is it's you know because it's such a generous book and you're so your memory is so incredible. Uh, you remember people's names. You remember the name of a taxi driver you had in Cuba or somewhere like that that you remember. Oh, but he was fondly. lovely. Yeah, but, Gilberto. But yeah. Most, most people wouldn't remember. Most most actors wouldn't have that kind of wouldn't. But care I'm not like most actors. No, you are not. I'm me. Yes. So I'm different. But also you know. to remember is, you know, it, it's, it's full of stuff, this book. It's, uh, it's uh, incredible. I'm glad you liked it. No, it's really lovely. good. I mean, there's... Oh, I mean, I don't know where to start. Um, look, well, just this morning I was listening to your story about uh, meeting the Queen, which I, I very much enjoyed. So you, you are quite... Even though you're a socialist, you are quite a royalist. Well, I, I'm not mad about the Queen, actually, although I think she's done a bloody good job, no question. But I really like Charles yeah. and Camilla. And I hate it when people are horrid about them in the newspapers and, and, and scornful. It's not right. You, you, they don't know them. People, you shouldn't be horrible about people unless you really know them. I mean, I really, I really know the Johnson family. And I know how horrible Boris Johnson is. <laughs> so... Um, and his father. I, I, I had a, a week. You know those programs called the Real Marigold Hotel when I go round with a sort of clutch of old people. And, and uh, well, he was in the team one week. And it's a week I want back. <laughs> <laughs> he was horrible. <laughs> but the queen, you finally met the queen... 
And, yes, uh, I'm not. I'm not going to go over the Queen's okay. story because everybody knows the Queen's story. But oh, okay. but she she is a, a, an admirable woman. But I w- I don't want to have tea with her. You know that sort of thing. <laughs> I think she's very good in her palace, and that's great. I like the revelation that uh, when you went to part when you were part of Prince Charles that there's a there's a chair there. Was it yes, Edward the... that that's fascinating. Yeah. Actually, I I had the amazing experience of being asked to a house party, or as, as they would say, a house party. And um, it, was, it was fascinating. It was at Sandringham. Uh, now, the, he lives in Highgrove. I've never been to Highgrove, but every, every year, I think, he rents Sandringham. He actually pays rent to his mother. <laughs> no Jewish family would do that. I mean, that's extraordinary. <laughs> You'd give it to your son, you know, but it, no, she doesn't do that. She, she takes the money from him and he rents it and he has a house party. And I was one of the guests at this house party along with Jeremy Paxman and um, my, Michael Morpurgo, who's the, the children's author and, and did, he wrote War Horse. He's a lovely man. And um, David Hockney, the painter. That, you know, there were some really quite posh people there. And um, it, it was fun. I enjoyed it. I've forgotten what we were talking about. We were talking about, about the chair. There was a chair that... Uh, oh, that's what I King wanted Edward to tell you about. Edward. Yes. Well, when I, when I arrived, um, he took me up. Prince Charles uh, greeted me. And then he took me up. And he said, I, I want to show you this. And it, it was uh, in the entrance of Sandringham. There's a very odd chair. It's a kind of wobbly, big, big chair, bigger than this. And it's wobbly, like that. And I, I said, what's that? And he said, well, um, it's, uh, it's actually a, a weighing machine. I said, a weighing machine? You, you're not going to weigh me, are you? Because I'm sensitive about being that. And um, he said, no, but uh, my, uh, I think it was his great-grandfather, Edward VII, who was the son of Queen Victoria, used to have lots of house parties at Sandringham. And he said, you, he used to weigh all the guests on arrival and on departure. <laughs> and if they hadn't put on weight, he thought he'd failed as a host. <laughs> I thought that was so charming, actually. It'd be annoying, though, wouldn't it, to have, it have to be weighed by the king? It's, it's all like a... feels like yeah. something in a squid game, to be honest. And it's, uh, if, you, if you haven't put on weight... <laughs> be very cross. Now, look, you're very honest about your sexual exploits in this book. And for a lesbian, there's an awful lot of blowjobs in this book. Well, there seems to be a misapprehension (laughs) uh, that if you're a lesbian, it means that you don't like cock. And I, I, I don't understand that because... I don't actually like cock now. <laughs> Not right up in my face sort of thing. No. But I, I, I didn't hate cock. I, I just, it was irrelevant. That, that was the thing. Um, <laughs> and uh, when, when you're a young Jewish girl, as I was in, in this late 50s and 60s, your parents, my parents, told me, you mustn't sleep with anybody because you will get pregnant and it will be a, a shocking and sad 
thing and it'll make us terribly sad and it'll be horrible and you mustn't do it. And so I thought, right, well, I mustn't do that. That's out of bounds. But because when you're young, it's absolutely natural that you feel moist. You feel... <laughs> you feel... Um, You have feelings. You're, you're, the sap is rising. Your, your, your clitoris swells and, you know, all these physiological things happen. And if you can't sleep with somebody, you have to do something else. Well, the obvious thing to do is it doesn't go in that hole, it goes in that <laughs> hole. And that seems to me to be perfectly fair. And nobody had said anything about sucking off. You mustn't do that. And I found I was rather good at it. And it was quite popular. So that's what I did. Yeah. I, don't, I don't regret it. I, <laughs> I, 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 di I didn't get any, any you know, mouth ulcers or anything from it. Um, but I think it did have one lasting, slightly lasting effect. I, I went to the dentist last last week, and I got a, quite a bad gag reflex. And I think it might have been a you know a, a folk memory of that, <laughs> a fuck memory of that, or something. <laughs> and there's, I mean, there's a couple of stories as well, and one of them you told on the Graham Norton show. I know about about sort of sex, sex pests and you sort of talk. Well, people getting their penises out and there was a man wanking in a tree, which seems like... Oh, in Scotland, yes, yeah. yes. Well, I mean, he wasn't a threat to me because he was very high up. Uh, <laughs> and I truly just felt, I felt worried for him, you know, because the... He was shaking and he was shaking and and I thought, oh dear, that, that could be very ugly up there. So I said to him, um, what are you doing? I said, come down at once. And I said, you're a soldier. I said, are you in the tattoo? He said, yes, I'm, I am, I am in the tattoo. I said, well, you, you could get into terrible trouble. You could be you could be dishonorably discharged, and I mean he was nearly <laughs> discharging. Um, <laughs> so all that happened was that I asked him to come down in onto ground level, yeah. and I said I will help you out, and then you will go home and and just pull yourself together and don't do it again. <laughs> and that's what I did. <laughs> And it, it, it went well. You know, it was... Do you think it's an encouragement, though, Miriam, to, to reward? I mean, it's a kind of reward, isn't it, for wanking in a tree? I don't know. He might have wanted to do it on his own. I, I don't know. I, I didn't really give him a choice, actually. Okay. I, I was a bit firm. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, so... <laughs> we're we're going to sell some books tonight, Miriam. We're going to sell some books tonight. 
Um, look, I, there, there's a really interesting... I don't know if you want to tell the story now, but there's a very interesting story about how your... It was your father, I think, avoiding getting called up in World War One, which is a family oh, well, story. Well, that's a very sad story, actually. Um... Shall I tell it? Because I think, well, it I might think it's make so in, people sad. That's okay. We're allowed to do some. We're allowed to do. Can you do sad? We can do. We here. can do wanking off strangers in trees. Yeah. And then we can move into something moving. Yes, and then that's we'll, true. That's we'll, life. Yeah, it I is. mean, that's what that's what happens in life. Well, um, <laughs> my my father came from a very poor immigrant family. From, they came from a country called Belarus and they came to Scotland and settled in the slums of Glasgow, in the Gorbals. And it was a tough, tough life. Anyway, when he was about 18, uh, he got um, a scholarship to Glasgow University to be a doctor, to, to study medicine. But at the same time, almost the same week that he got the scholarship the call-up papers arrived to go to France. It was in 19... It would have been 1917, just before the end of the First World War. And my grandfather was a... a started off as a peddler, you know, with a pack on his back, selling little gifts and little jewels and what what you'd call trinkets to the miners' wives in the lowland villages of Scotland. And he was so intensely proud of his, of his firstborn, his eldest child, Joe, that's my father, who had just won a scholarship to Glasgow University. So when he saw the call-up papers, he knew that if his son went to France to the Flanders fields where the battle was raging, the life expectancy of a young officer was six weeks. There was massive murder, and people were killed in their hundreds of thousands in the First World War. And he, his heart was broken, and so he decided to do a particular thing. He had the courage. He rang up the commander of the battalion, the 4th Battalion, Glasgow Highland Light Infantry, which was the regiment that had called up my father. And he went, made an appointment, and went to see the commander that afternoon in his office. So you have to imagine this sort of little old Jew um, in his best suit, not speaking English very well, nervous and frightened, and he knocked at the door, and the officer said, come in. So he opened the door, went in, closed it behind him. The officer, all in, uh, in full uniform, said, oh, right, what, what can I do for you? And he cleared his throat, my grandfather, and he said, um, thank you very much for for." giving me this time to talk to me today. I, I come with a request, but I must explain to you first that my son received today the call-up papers to go to France with your regiment. 
And you know and I know that if he goes to France, he will not come back. And I come here to ask you today, please, please, take my son's name off the draft and give him a chance to live. He has just won a scholarship to study medicine to become a doctor in Glasgow University. He's the first member of our family to go to university. He is a good boy, he's a clever boy. Please give him the chance. But I cannot ask you to do something like that. I cannot ask without, I give you something in exchange. And he put his hand in his, in his pocket and he took out and opened the palm of his hand and showed a diamond from his warehouse that he'd gone to get. And he said, this jewel is a diamond. It is not a flawless diamond, but it is nearly flawless. It is the most valuable thing in my warehouse. I am a jeweler, and this is the prize of my warehouse. I want that you should take this in exchange for the life of my son. Please, I beg you, I beg you, take this and give me my son. And what do you think happened? Well, it always moves me when I tell this story, actually. But when, when I told the story in a show in Australia, there were two Scottish ladies who were in the audience. And in the interval, they, I, I heard them as they went out. They said, did you hear that story about the, the Scottish officer taking a bribe? <laughs> Impossible. <laughs> that was completely made up. That was impossible. <laughs> he took it. Yeah. And my, my father lived, became a doctor, and became my father. Okay. And so I'm here. It's an amazing, it's a baller move from your granddad, I have to say. It's an amazing, you know, it's an amazing risk for him. What a risk he took. But for and love, what a risk you... the, the officer took. Yeah. But he, I mean, the really wonderful thing would be if he hadn't taken it and he'd still taken it <laughs> yeah. off. But he couldn't do that. So he took the jewel and he gave my grandfather his jewel, his son. It's beautiful. It's, it's an absolutely incredible story. And without that... Without that act of terrible betrayal of his country, <laughs> we wouldn't have Miriam here, so... That's true. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> but well done to him as well. 
The worst thing you could have done is taken the diamond and not taken them off the yeah. list. That is that would be the that'd be the film version of it. Yeah. I mean it is it, it does sound so like a like a story that would happen that, that kind of decision that would happen in a in a movie. It should, you know, it should be a movie possibly. It's, it's, it's well, a, it happened yeah. and um I'm I'm glad that he he did that obviously and I think you know almost any father would do that. But you'd be afraid, wouldn't you? I don't know, it, it, because it was a bribe. I mean, it's not a, it's, it's a wrong thing to do. Yeah. But I don't blame him. I, I can't blame not. him. I, I really can't. I mean, I think people didn't, you know, it's amazing that people didn't, you know, didn't think to do that, you know, as well. So, you know, they, they, any father would do it, but most fathers didn't do yeah. it, so, yeah. <laughs> presumably. Um, yeah, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's oh, that's, that, there's, a, there's also a, a story about uh, your therapist who became your friend, who revealed a, a sort of very dark secrets about her life to you. Yes, which, uh, well... Which is an extraordinary story. Yes, this is another very serious story. Yeah. Um, you will surely know of the wonderful cellist Jacqueline Dupre, um, who sadly died with multiple sclerosis. And she was at the height of her powers. She was probably, you know, the greatest cellist we've ever had in, in this country. Um, I've seen her only on, on film and, and seen her wonderful playing. And she, um, my therapist uh, was called Margaret Branch. And I just loved her. She was wonderful. She called me a talented toddler um, <laughs> because I was a sort of not properly developed as a, as a grown-up. Probably still true. And, um, and she, one, one day she said, we, we became friends once we stopped therapy. You know, she became a friend of mine. And, and one day she, was, she said, um, I want to tell you something, Miriam. And she had a very staccato way of talking. She said, I want to tell you something. Um, I don't want you to tell anyone until after I'm dead. So... I thought, hmm, okay. So I listened, and she said, um, one of my patients was the cellist, Jacqueline Dupre. You've heard of her? I said, of course I have. She said, well, she was a great, great friend of mine. I, I treated her for some years, and then, of course, she developed multiple sclerosis, a terrible illness, and she couldn't play anymore. And her, her husband, Daniel Barenboim, the pianist and conductor, he couldn't bear what she had become, this sort of shaking, incapable woman. And he left her and started another family in, in, in Paris. And her life was just not worth living. And one day she, she said to me, um, Margaret, I, you know, I, my life is, is just not worth living. I want to die. And I, I said to her, well, Jacqueline, if, when you decide that you really do want to die, I I will help you to die. I know how to do this because I was in the SOE, Special Operations Executive, during the war, and I was trained in how to kill people. And uh, one day, uh, she rang me and said that she did, she had decided. She'd given her staff the day off because she had people looking after her. And I went in to her home, I had the key, and I injected her above the hairline, which is what you do. That is how you kill people. You inject them above the hairline. It is, um, you, can't be, you can't see it, it's, it's in invisible. 
And I took care to see that there was no record of my being there. I you know, dusted everything, I suppose. And I left. And uh, she died that night. Well, that was uh, an incredible thing to be told. And I, I didn't know quite what to say or how to receive the, the confidence. Well, I, I just said, I, I probably, if I could have helped somebody, I would have done the same thing, I, I hope. But I won't tell anybody. I'm, I'm not going to tell anybody. And I never did un, until now. Yeah. And um, I put it in the book and lawyers checked it out and apparently because it was told to me, it wasn't something that I could be sued right. for, for telling, uh, telling on about it. Sure. But um, Daniel Barenboim, who's still alive, said, oh, this is nonsense, this is unverifiable. And it is absolutely true, that is true. It is unverifiable. Unless Margaret told somebody else uh, about that, apart from me, who could substantiate what I said, it isn't verifiable. But there's no way that I would have told that story if it hadn't been told to me. I wouldn't sure. have invented that. And I'm perfectly certain that it was true. That is what happened. But um, I haven't been sued, and I don't expect I will be. But, <laughs> but it's, it's, but uh, but it's, it's also, a story. It's amazing that you that she that she put her confidence in you as well. It's, it says a lot about you that she. Yeah, she well, I wasn't going to. I wasn't going to shop her. Yeah. Because she would have been done for murder. Yeah. I, I mean, I mean, I'm not going to do that. But someone else might have done. But also the fact that she obviously wanted to get it off her chest, and then she yeah. chose you. It says a lot about you and the friendships you have with people. Yeah, that, um, I think so. Yeah, but uh, anyway, it caused a bit of a fuss in the, in the, <laughs> in the newspapers, and I I was very selfishly worried that that story would become more important than my book, <laughs> <laughs> but it hasn't. So, but as with so many things in this book, it's just is. I mean, this is a little bit more. That there's fleeting stories in this book that you kind of go, what, what, what happened? Uh, so you know, there's so much in there, but then to, to solve uh, a a murder that we're not, a, you know, a, a mercy killing that nobody knew about, to have that in there is just an incredible thing to have in a book. And that's why the book you don't know what's coming next is what I'm, what I'm telling you. That's uh, and we've seen that you you are such a fantastic actor and. You know, you've, you re well, you've got that. I think it's, it's, it, you've done so much stage work and the, the people might not know you for, and obviously people might know you from Harry Potter or they might know you from Blackadder or they might know you from, from these sort of comic and, and bigger roles, but you, you, you are this, you, what do you think the secret of acting is? Is, is it that em you've clearly got empathy and that the emotion is, the emotion is so real that as you tell these stories. I didn't, go to drama school so I wasn't really taught any any particular method or way of doing things and and I think what I what I do the only way I know how to do it is is to read the the text of, of the play that I'm working on and just keep immersing myself in it and and trying to find bits of the person that fit bits of me so that I can I can draw myself into that character and pull bits of that character into me and just 
meld it so that I'm becoming another person. Mm -hmm. And that's the only way that I know how to do it. And I think I can be very good. It's true. And I can also not be very good. You know, I can, <laughs> can make an absolute pillock of it. But, but um, I think I, I'm pretty good on radio anyway. I do think that. I think I'm a very good radio actress. And I can be very good, but not always, in other things. Well, it's the, I mean, it's the, it's the range you have which made you, which was, which was when you did oh, that. Oh, it's first, the range. With that radio. It's the range. But you, you, did, uh, you did an audition for the radio where you, you improvised a, a play, basically, with different characters on a train, right? And that's why you got the job. as the, A very difficult job to get in the, in the, in the, the team that, yes. that, that, that um, were on the radio. Well, radio I've drama. always... I've, when I was growing up in... I was born in Oxford, which is why I have this very irritatingly posh voice. <laughs> I don't want to be posh. I just am. Um, and I... But, and I decided that I had to find another voice in order to be able to be agreeable to people. Because <laughs> I, I think that a very posh voice is, is it puts you off people. It's, it's not nice. I know when I'm in Australia, and I love Australia, my partner's Australian, and I go to Australia, and at first when I open my mouth, they go, oh my God. <laughs> Can't believe anybody can talk like this for real. So I, I borrow the other bit of me, which is the Scottish bit, which I heard always growing up with my father, so that I can just put on a Scottish accent and it just comes out like that and it's just very easy. And, you know, if, I, if I'm um, in the street and I want to know the time or where the bus stop is or whatever, I just go up to people and I say, excuse me, um, sorry to bother you, could, uh, where's the bus stop here? And, I, and it, it's much nicer for them rather than if I say um, I'm so sorry uh, could you <laughs> so it's been it's been useful being able to reach people in that way and, and it's not like totally unusual but I found with a lot of times with actors and especially great actors and people who play lots of different parts you kind of lose they sometimes lose the essence of who they are or it's very difficult to find the real person behind some some character actors, I, I find that you know they, they're never themselves. Whereas I think the essence of you, Miriam, is still when you're you, you're very much you. It's, you're a real person. Do you not? Well, I the, fucking hope so. Yeah, but many actors. <laughs> I, I mean, of course, I, I, I. A lot of actors lose themselves, or or, ne or 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 are doing it because they're not. Maybe they're maybe they're not so strong a personality themselves that they put on personalities. But it feels you're. Miriam Margaret. I've always uh, been like this. Yeah. I've always been me. And um, in some ways, I'm, I'm quite a, a confident uh, person because I know who I am. Um, but I, I want to be like this. I've chosen. Yeah. Amazing. They, they seem. <laughs> I've actually chosen to be this person. And I didn't know that it was going to make me money to be like that. <laughs> that was a bit of a surprise. Um, but it's turned out very nicely, really. There's a, there's a, also, in the book, you see it, but I think you see it if you, when you're interviewed and when, when you talk to, is, you know, the, the honesty that is, is disarming. So, like, most people would, you know, think, oh, well, I don't want to talk about this, or I won't mention that story. But you're honest, and therefore I think it just... It means we, we trust you and, you know, that, that's... Well, you have to be honest. You can't yeah. do business with liars. 
And that's the problem with Boris Johnson. <laughs> you really can't. I mean, we, all of us who, who, I mean, I'm sure that there are many members of the Tory party who are decent people, and they must be utterly shocked and disappointed at what's happened. This shower of incompetent, corrupt buffoons <laughs> running our country and running it into the ground, it's absolutely terrifying. So we have to get them out. So you've not to vote Tory anymore, that's all. <laughs> I, I just... Yeah, you lot. You. Well, one would hope so. I mean, I don't... I, it seems, Miriam, that people will... I don't know what they have to do. They're putting shit in the sea and people are going, yeah, that's fair enough. I don't know. That's a good place for it. I don't, I don't know what the answer is. I'm not... I'm not I'm not political enough to know the solutions, but I can tell you that the problems are there and real, and they are partly because people are lying. They lie to us, and we accept it. Why isn't everybody outraged? <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's wicked. We're being led by the nose by these bastards. I just can't bear it. And I, I, I feel very angry, and so that's why I talk about it like this because yeah. it does shock me i i don't want the country to be like this it's dreadful yeah it's true um and you're honest about yourself as well which i, li I really like it and i like i like the fact that you talk i mean the, i like that you talk about is it was endgame the, the samuel beckett play you were in yeah that you just talk about not liking the play or understanding well the i play. didn't understand it <laughs> <Yeah>. at all <laughs> I, d I don't understand beckett but I was really good in it. I mean, that's, that's one of the things I was good in. Yeah. Yeah. That, I tell you, I, there was a rather wonderful thing. Uh, uh, Samuel Beckett is a great Irish playwright, very difficult to understand what the plays are, but they are wonderful plays. W Waiting for Godot was one of his plays. It's a great, great play. But you don't have a clue what's going on. But it's gripping. Anyway... Um, in this play, Endgame, I, I played um, one half of, of, a, of an Irish old couple. Um, uh, I, I was Nell, and, and, the, and my husband is called Nag, and we were down in a dustbin. That's, that's where the play was set. We, we were in the dustbin, and then there was Mark Rylance and Simon McBurney, who, who were not in the dustbin, and they were a couple of very weird people. And... Um, Simon was the director, and I said to him, you know, I, I, I really don't know how to do this. I didn't, know, I didn't know how to act it. And he said, well, well, we'll find the way as we go, and we did. And he gave me a piece of direction which was so brilliant and helpful. He said, um, you know that time when you're talking about your youth, and because she goes into this little soliloquy about when she was... A, when she was young. And he said, I want you to stroke your hair as if you remember those days when you were young. And I thought, oh, that's an interesting piece of direction, okay. And so I did this gesture as I was talking and I just touched my hair and remembered my youth. 
And everybody who saw the play said that that moment was very strong and, and made the character have a life and a, and, a, and a memory. It was just, you know, when you're thinking about yourself in the past and you just, it's, it, it lifts your, your face and your, your eyes fill with, with memories and it got across the footlights. And it was a bloody good performance. So, <laughs> you know, and that was all due to, to Simon McBurney. Um, I mean, you talk about, I mean, the, the, your career, I mean, it's still ongoing. You're, if you look at IM, so. your IMDb page is just full of new credits, things that aren't out yet, things that you've recently done. So you're working and working. And you've worked all these, all your careers, 60 years or something like that. Been... It is amazing. <laughs> it's amazing because, you know, when I, I've always been fat. I've always been short. I've always had no neck. And, and that is a real deprivation not to have a neck <laughs> I mean it's bad enough when you're driving you sort of <laughs> can't see round you but I've managed to make a living I really have and that's amazing <laughs> now this is a question I ask everyone I'm not trying to be morbid but um Death, death. Well, it's about death. But what do you think out of all those roles when when your obituary, which I hope never happens, Miriam, and maybe it never will, comes out? I hope you'll live forever. What what photo do you think will be used from your career to illustrate your life? Golly, I never thought about that. Well, do you think it's been taken already, Miriam, or do you think it's something? to... Uh, no, I think it will be uh, me as Mrs. Gamp. Right. Me as Mrs. Gamp. Now, uh, Charles Dickens. Yeah, Charles Dickens, you know who that is? Um, <laughs> they're, grown, they're not five years old, they're grown people, they know. I know. They're very well, intelligent people, they know who Charles Dickens is. The he main thing know. is, they're not American. Um, <laughs> because Americans haven't got a clue. But uh, the English know that Charles Dickens was a very great writer in the 19th century. He was born in 1812. So he was actually born in the Georgian times before Queen Victoria, and he died in 1870. He was 56 when he died. And in that really relatively short life, he wrote some of the most glorious novels that were ever written. I, I think he's as great as Shakespeare. He's, he's our window into the 19th century. We see the 19th century because of the way that he showed it to us. And I absolutely love him. And he created over 2,000 characters. That's a huge amount of, of people that he just pulled out of his brain, out of his imagination. Absolutely amazing. And one of the characters that he, that he created was a drunken midwife called Mrs. Gamp. And she always went about with an umbrella and I don't know if you know but you can call a, a, an umbrella a gamp uh, in Victorian times it was called a gamp after her and in Victorian times uh, midwives had two jobs they didn't just deliver babies they laid out corpses as well so when the door uh, knock came 
and they were called for. They didn't know which duty they were being called upon to, uh, to, to do. And Dickens describes that as uh, Mrs. Gamp had a face for all occasions. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a brilliant description. And um, I, I, do, I do Mrs. Gamp. I, I did a, a play called Dickens Women and I did a lot of the characters and she was one of them. And, and Mrs. Gamp has one line that I always loved to, to say. Um, she, she was always pissed. She, um, pre pretended she wasn't. And pretended she was, you know, a very good nurse and very honest and so. But she used to say, leave the bottle on the chimney piece and don't ask me to take none. But let me put my lips to it when I'm so disposed and I will do everything I've been engaged to do according to the best of my ability. <laughs> That's Mrs. Gamble. <laughs> and the, the photo that will be used will be me as Mrs. Gamp. Yeah. That's what I think. Well, that's apt a face for all occasions, which yes. is very much, yes. very much what you are as well. So it's, uh, oh, it's, uh, well, there's, there are other things to talk about. We'll, uh, we'll, uh, let me ask you uh, some emergency questions. Just, emergency? Uh, emergency questions. I don't need be... them, but I just feel like I should ask, I have all the people in the world, I, should, I think I should ask you some early ones. I, don't, I won't ask you number one. Uh, I want we, to know what number one emergency uh, question you've, is. You've done, it to, you've done it for other people, but you, but you can't do it for yourself. Uh, <laughs> um, have you ever seen a ghost, Miriam? That's what I... That's no, what I, no, of course no. not. No, no, no. no. <laughs> I deal in reality, not in nonsense. See, that's... <laughs> That's, that's unusual. Most actors have seen ghosts. Well, most, fuck them. Maybe most, they have. <laughs> most, most actors are mental, Miriam. Most actors are mentally ill. I haven't. Uh, I haven't. <laughs> I'm glad. It's my test to find out if someone's crazy or not. And you're not. You're no, not. I've never I knew seen a ghost. I've never, never no. seen a ghost. Never seen a ghost. Have you ever seen a Bigfoot? What is that? <laughs> I've seen no. a big cock. I've never <laughs> seen a big cock. <laughs> The, the, the question of actually just falling across here is, yeah. would you like to give me oral sex? So that is the uh, question 139. Not now, that, darling. I feel like, you know, it would be, I'd be part of a... I don't want to give anybody story. oral sex okay. anymore. Everyone I've seen is just... Uh, I want chicken soup with matzo balls. That's what <laughs> I <like>. Oh, <laughs> and you have another claim to frame, which is the first person to swear on TV... Yeah, well, that's hardly a, a claim it to fame. It is a claim to fame. I got an answer wrong in University Challenge. <laughs> well, of course I said, fuck. <laughs> I mean, anybody would. But it, I just happened to... The camera was on me, and, you know, so they bleeped it out. But, I mean, I'm not proud of it. It was just obvious. Anybody would. <laughs> All these things that you say anyone would do, you're the, still the only person who's, <laughs> who has done them. 
And uh, I was quite interested in you. You you got whisked off to Hollywood, and you were you starred in a sitcom in America, which I don't think many yes. people would be aware of. Yeah. Here. It was a disaster. Yeah. <laughs> but I was indeed very good in it. It was interesting. It was called Franny's Turn, and it was about a Cuban woman that I played um, who had a very uh, sort of old-fashioned husband. And she was a feminist, and she was trying to teach him how to be a new man, the, the new way of being. It, it was such fun. I loved it. I loved doing it. I loved the company that we worked with. And uh, it w it wasn't popular. It didn't it didn't go. So there we are. It just failed. And the interesting thing is that in in America, in well, in certainly in Los Angeles, everybody's frightened of two things. They're frightened of fat. They're frightened of catching fat. <laughs> and they're frightened of failure. And it's ridiculous. I mean, you know, you 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 have a failure, then you get up and work a bit harder and you have a success. I mean, you've just got to go with the flow and not get too upset about it. That's what I think, anyway. Well, well, when was that? When, was, when, when, did you, when did you go out to America? What decade was that? Is was this that... a fresh glass? Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, you never can tell. <laughs> it's That's a soldier's nice. seaman. That's nice. It's what? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'll have a bit more of that. <laughs> but you did get, you know, you did, you did. You obviously, went on. It was, was it the the eighties that that was? Was it that that? Because you obviously, it didn't harm your career, even though in America they. Uh, you sort of talk in the book about how just. When there's a, you talk about seeing, um, was it? Uh, oh, so you talk about seeing someone's show. I can't, it's Rowan Atkinson's show, isn't it? America and the, the notice yes, came that, out. Yes, that wasn't. That was not Rowan at his best, and it didn't. It didn't go well. But it, but he is brilliant. Yeah. I mean, I think he's wonderful. I love it. I love him. But at the after party, but, everyone just disappeared. Once yeah, the that was horrible. That was awful. Uh, you know, it it's silly to. To, to be like that, I think I think they have too much of a cult of celebrity or something over there. No, I mean I I stayed in Hollywood and I had a very good time. And the thing was, uh, I met a, a chap Norman Lear, who's a, a very well known television producer of of great comedy shows. He he was the producer of um, uh, All in the Family, which was the uh, the American version of of Warren Mitchell's yeah. great success of Alf Garnett till death us do part, and many other shows. And he paid me. He met me and he liked me, and he thought, "I'll you know, I'll make a show, I'll make a, a series for you." And he paid me three hundred and fifty thousand dollars. And I didn't have to do anything, not even suck him off. Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. He gave me this incredible amount of money just to be in America while he worked out what, what I should do, what yeah. show I should be in. I couldn't believe it, you know. That, but it was absurd. I mean, that's absurd. 
But it was fun. It was lovely, you know. And I had money and I had a car and a, and a flat. And I, I had a nice time. It yeah. was lovely. And then the show went on and it was, a, it was a failure. And from that moment, nobody spoke to me again. No, no social life, no phone calls. But you pick up and, you know, yeah. you get on with it. But he was, he was lovely. But the really wonderful thing was that all the money that I made in America... I used when my father, God rest his soul, needed nursing care at home with me, he lived with me, I was able to pay for it. And that money that I made in America was what kept him looked after and alive for four years. And then he was 96 and he died. And I feel so happy that I had the money to do that because most people don't have that sort of money you 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 and care is expensive this is the problem with uh, in 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 uh, the health service they they've taken the care section out of the health service and people have to have to put their don't have to but they put their families in in these terrible places sometimes and they're not treated well. It, it's a scandal. Now, I wanted to have my father with me, but I wanted as well to be able to earn a living and go out to work and be an actress. And the only way I could do that was if I had the money to pay nurses to, to look after him. Then I would come home at night, and he would be all clean and looked after and happy. And I only had that money because of the money I made in America but I can hold my head up. I say, I took care of my father at home and I used the money I made to do it. That's why, th thank you, well, that's why I wrote the book. Because nobody's going to look after me. But I have the money to do it. Well, I, it seems to me that you're, you know, you, you're, your brain is still fizzing, you're coming up with stuff the book the book's really genuinely well worth your time it's yeah great. buy it buy Do it buy the book because we need to in, keep you going for as long as we can uh and you said what are you have you got work in the pipeline is there stuff coming up yes i have i'm i'm thrilled one of the things that's happened in my life as i've got much older is i've started to do documentaries you know that's programs where you, you don't have to... They know what documentaries are. <laughs> they know what documentaries are. How dare you insult my audience? Come here and insult my audience. Of course they do, of course they do. He doesn't know, he doesn't know. <laughs> well, these documentaries, I'm, I'm going to Australia on January the 14th, and I'm going to make three programmes about Australia. I've done three in in, um, in Victoria and uh, Northern Territory and in Queensland. Now I'm going to do them in Western Australia, South Australia and Tasmania. And um, that's great fun because you go around and you meet people and you talk to people and you ask questions and you learn things. And I absolutely love it. And I told them, I, I do it in a, in a camper van and I said, I will do it but I must have a toilet. That is the absolute, I will not leave, leave the country without a traveling toilet. And I've got one, in, so that, that's good. 
And I've just done a film in Wales about cancer called My Happy Ending with some wonderful actresses. Um, Andy McDowell, you know, from Four Weddings and a Funeral, uh, Tamsin Gregg, Sally Phillips, Raki Thakra, who is in EastEnders, and David Williams is in it too. It's, it's just a delightful, heart-giving heart film, wonderful. And I've done a documentary with Alan Cumming around Scotland, which will be out in the middle of November. And that was great fun to do. He's a lovely bloke. And I'm going to be on the Graham Norton show on November the 5th, which is another... And they pay you for that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, um... They don't pay you for this. They don't know. You're getting, you're getting paid for this. Am I? Yeah, not, not too, not as much as Graham. What am I getting? 500 quid. It's all right, isn't it? I didn't know that. Yeah. Your agents kept it from you, Miriam. They're trying to, they're trying to squirrel that away. They say, oh, it's for oh. publicity, Miriam. You don't have to... That's lovely. Paid. Thank you. That's all right. I didn't think I got anything no, for yeah. this. Well, anyway, I mean, it's been very nice coming to talk to <laughs> Well, it's been very nice. You are, you are, there aren't many living legends, Miriam, but you are a living legend, and it's absolutely fantastic to have you do it. End there, Leicester Square Run. Ladies and gentlemen, Miriam Mugley! You have been listening to Rahalastapa with me, Richard Herring, and my guest, Miriam Margulies. Thank you to Scant Regard. They play the music on the credits, and that is why I'm thanking them. I'm indebted to my producer, Ben Walker. He's still eating a sandwich, the same one from last week. It's insane. Thank you very much to Chris Evans, not that one, for all his work. And thank you very much to everyone at the Leicester Square Theatre for having us during this immense run. It's been great to be back. Thank you to all the audiences who came out to see us live or watched us on the live stream. You make our lives just worthwhile, my fan friends. This is a Sky Potato Fuzz on GoFasterStripe.com production. Why not? I don't know. Go to GoFasterStripe.com slash badges and get a badge. Look at RichTerring.com for information of upcoming Rahalastapa gigs. And hey, why not just tell your friends about this podcast? Ask them to listen to 100 episodes this week and that will help us make some more money to make more podcasts. Or just one episode. Ask 100 friends to listen to one episode. And if they then listen, they tell 100 friends and all those 100 friends tell 100 friends, then it'll soon we'll be billionaires and we'll do use our money for evil. See you soon, bye. <laughs>